0: I'd like uh, to invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. You'll find that reading in the Pew Bible in front of you on page 1011 if you'd like to use one of the Bibles provided for you. You'll see from the screen behind me that we're beginning a new series in the letter of James this morning, a series that we're entitling Faith is Not Alone. This comes, of course, from one of the Protestant reformers who, when pressed about his doctrine of justification by faith alone, said it is therefore faith alone which justifies. A man or a woman, a boy or a girl is made right with God only by faith and not by what we do. He continues, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. The relationship between faith and works is a knotty issue for Christians, it always has been, I assume it always will be, but I think at the outset of our study in the letter of James, we ought to just wrap our minds around this reality, that God never saves someone that he doesn't subsequently Change. In other words, God doesn't justify, declare righteous, anyone he doesn't also sanctify, cause to be formed progressively into the image of Christ. The notion that I can know Jesus but not have a relationship with him, that I might know him as Savior but not obey him as Lord, is at complete odds with the New Testament teaching. And so James, in his little letter here, is keen to press upon us the necessity of a thankful, obedient response to the gospel. Now I want this morning just to read verses 1 through 12 as we begin our study in this letter. And a message that we're entitling, Testing, Testing. Chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James also, the half-brother of Jesus, having grown up in the same home as our Lord. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, that is, Jewish-Christians scattered throughout the known world because of persecution. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Why don't we bow and pray together? Let's all pray. Father, we thank you as we approach you this morning that you have given us your word so that we might know you. We thank you that your word tells us what the culture around us never will, that your word points us to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and that your word gives shape to the experiences of our lives. And so it's our prayer here this morning as we come before you with open Bibles that you, by your Holy Spirit, would come. And be our teacher and that you would transform us into the image of your son we pray all of this in jesus precious name amen well for our college students the semester has finally ended and with it the school year and in very short time the high school students and junior high students all of our students will follow suit It's always a wonderful thing when you're in school to be brought and ushered into summer vacation because you know that at that point the tests are over for at least a few months. But those of us who have been living life for some time, certainly those of us who have been following Jesus for some time, know that the most difficult tests that we take don't come in the classroom. They come in the experience of living and they come in the form of trials. I'm thinking first and foremost of the trial of the young Christian couple struggling with the painful experience of infertility while their dreams of a large family seem to fade. The pain of the Christian widow who finds herself drowning in mounting bills as she attempts to provide for herself on a fixed income with little to no help from friends or family. The struggle of the Christian man battling against the darkness of depression alone because of the cruel and misguided notion that, quote, Christians don't get depressed. The emotional turmoil of the Christian woman married to a cold and distant husband who once swept her off her feet but now seems to have little to no concern for her heart. The pain of the new Christian in a hostile cultural context being physically assaulted, for betraying the family's established faith by committing herself to Christ, or the pressure placed on the teenage boy by constant ridicule because he refuses to get drunk and compromise his body sexually because he desires to walk with Jesus in righteousness. Life is hard, and for many of us, having trusted in Christ, we realize that Our faith in Jesus only seems to make it more difficult. And the question that we ask is why? Why should it be so? Well, here in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 12, we have an answer. And it's this, that the trials that we face in life test and strengthen our faith so that we persevere straight through to the end. There's a purpose in our suffering to conform us into the image of Jesus. Now I want you to look down at the passage in front of us because this text has provided difficulty for those who would try to find a unifying theme. It seems like at one moment James is keen to talk about trials and then at the next he talks about wisdom and then wealth and then he circles back around to trials at the end in verse 12. But I want you to notice in verses 2 through 4 that there are three words that I want us to keep fixed in our minds. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. There's the first word. For you know that the testing, there's the second word, produces steadfastness. There's word number three. Now look down at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast. There's one of our words. Under trial, there's another of our words. When he has stood the test. So there's all three of our words at the beginning and at the end of the passage. I remember when I was a a young boy, I used to love to put together jigsaw puzzles. And whenever I'd get a new puzzle, the first thing I would do is I would separate all the border pieces and sort of put them together. And I might not know just how all the pieces in the middle fit together to make the whole, but I knew that at least it was framed in the context of the border. And here what James is doing is he's writing to us about trials, and he says, You may not know how all these seemingly separate bits fit together, but know this, they're framed within the context of what the Lord is doing in your life through trial. Now, I have four points this morning, and we're only going to get through two. But if trials are meant to test and strengthen our faith so that we persevere straight through to the end, trials then are to be met by the Christian person with four things. Number one, they're to be met with joy, verse 2, count it all joy. Secondly, they're to be met with wisdom, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom. Thirdly, they're to be met with boasting, verse 9, let the lowly brother boast. And then finally, they're to be met with steadfastness, verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast. So number one this morning, trials call for joy. Look again, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Joy. As the NIV has it, pure joy. When you meet with trials of various kinds. I love the way that J.B. Phillips uh, paraphrases this verse. He talks about the trials that crowd into your life. It's that stock imagery, isn't it, of the movie or the comic book where the hero is trapped in a wall, in the, or in a room, and the walls begin to close in upon him from every direction. Isn't that a wonderful picture of trials and suffering in your life? Feels feel suffocating at times, like the walls are caving in upon you. And James says, in that very moment, I want you to meet with your suffering with joy. Now, we have to admit right at the outset that this mentality puts us at variance with the world around us. Joy? The best that I can tell, suffering, hardship, affliction, trial in the lives of human beings are typically met with three different kinds of attitudes. For some, hardship, suffering is sort of an inevitable and yet meaningless part of life. There's no purpose in it. It just seems to happen. And so the way that trials are supposed to be met under that framework is to grin and bear it. Just endure. This is where we get the phrase that's so often uh, bandied about in our culture, it is what it is. You can't change it, just move through it. On the other hand, there are those who would tell us that the hardship, affliction, and trials in our lives are met to, or should be met with sort of this escapism, that trials are the one thing in our lives that we should avoid at all costs, and if you could do anything to avoid them or to escape them, by all means, do so. This mentality sees hardship as an unwelcome intrusion in our otherwise happy lives. After all, if life is about pleasure, if life is about happiness, just get out of the difficulty as quickly as you can. Why would you remain in a marriage to a spouse that doesn't meet your needs when you could split and find someone more suitable? This is the attitude of avoidance. But then there's a third mentality that's often encouraged, and and sadly enough, it's often encouraged by religious leaders, and it's the mentality that hardship or trial, affliction is a sign of God's displeasure, so that if I'm suffering in a very black and white mechanical way, I can tie my suffering either to a lack of faith on my part or some sin in my life that I've yet to repent of. Now don't misunderstand me, sometimes the Lord does discipline his children, it's a glorious thing when God brings affliction in our lives to cause us to repent, but we can never say that all suffering is that. In the face of these three erroneous attitudes towards trial, James says, count it all joy. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness count it all joy. You know. There's something about trials that only the Christian brother or sister can know and will know. And it is not that trials are meaningless. It's not that they're an interruption. It's not that they're the sign of God's displeasure. It's that they are one of God's ordained means to test our faith and bring us into Christ-like maturity. Now, I want to press in upon you in verses 2 and through 4 that there's a, a honing in here. There's a focus on our minds. He says, count it all joy, verse 2, for you know, verse 3. What organ do we exercise when we consider something, when we know something? Our minds. And the reason, friends, that this is so vital is that in the hardship that we face our hearts begin to scream at us contrary messages james says you've got to know something this morning and you've got to know that in the midst of your affliction god is at work count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds for you know that the testing of your faith the language there is that of silver or gold being refined in a fire So that as the mineral is put in and the temperature is turned up, all of the impurities, all that's undesirable, all that would cause the the material to be corrupted or divided is burned away and the result is pure and valuable. James says that's what's happening in your trials. The Lord, as it were, is burning away all the impurities of your faith. All the sort of divided hearts and corruption in your mind, as you hold the faith, uh, hold your faith in Jesus, being melted away in the crucible of Christ. Know this: that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, or patience, or endurance. You know, just as a muscle cannot be stronger unless it lifts heavier weights. Trust me, I'm an expert so too our faith will only grow and strengthen and be fortified and bolstered if it has to go and through and endure the pain of bearing us up in the midst of suffering. A faith that endures only while on easy street is a faith to be questioned, but a faith that endures hardship and trial and affliction is as pure and as valuable as gold. And he says that the end of all of this is that we might be perfect and complete. This is the end goal and the present pursuit of every Christian person, lacking in nothing. So the bottom line for you and I this morning, loved ones, is that if you and I want to share in the character of Christ, we'll never do that without first sharing in the suffering of Christ. Christ. To be a Christian person is to place our faith in the Lord Jesus who is accounted as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. A living Lord who laid down his life as a sacrifice for sin and bore in himself the crushing wrath of God for us. Not so that we could kick our legs up, but so that he could call us into the radical new life of discipleship. Whereby inch by inch, moment by moment, we become more like him. So trials, because they're meant to strengthen our faith so that we persevere, are to be met with joy, and secondly, they're to be met with wisdom. Now I love what James does here. He says to us that the, the goal of the trials that we face, the hardship that enters into our lives is that we might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But then in verse 5, he says, but wait a moment. Let's not hurry the process so that if any of you lacks wisdom currently, right now, as you endure hardship, let him ask God. The goal is that we would lack nothing. We would be fully formed image bearers of Jesus. But in the present moment, As we endure affliction, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Now, the connection is clear enough, isn't it? That in order to walk through trial and endure through trial, I need wisdom. But the ultimate question that we have to ask is, what is wisdom? In a room like this, we will be representative of a variety of different temperaments, attitudes, attitudes reflexes. I would imagine that many of us when we are faced with a difficult circumstance either out of a sort of sense of embarrassment or self-sufficiency we'll just keep to ourselves. Others of us will phone a friend almost immediately. You see you know I find myself in this circumstance and I don't really know what to do the best that I can see I have options A, B, and C Could you help me decide which one's right? If you're truly humble, you might say, you know, I really don't know what to do in this scenario at all. Could you give me some insight? Could you give me some wisdom? What do I do? A simple Google search about wisdom and the wisdom of the world will reveal that the culture at large defines wisdom far differently than the Bible. There's a major news network that started a, an initiative called the Wisdom Project, subtitled Wisdom and Philosophy Found Everywhere from Ancient Texts to Pop Culture. And if you find this site, you read some of the articles that are being published there, you'll find things like, not worrying about anything is everything, the art of turning losing into winning, how to stop being annoyed at life, and what would Atticus do. That's Wisdom the world at large conceives of wisdom in the following categories don't worry start winning don't be annoyed and read to kill a mockingbird now all of these things are good advice but here's what i want to put before you this morning do you truly believe that the god and father of our lord jesus christ who saved us not through bringing us good advice but through the proclamation of good news Christ saves sinners is now almost entirely interested in us growing to be like Jesus through good advice. I mean, if only there were a place where you and I could turn to figure out exactly what James means when he talks about wisdom. How about chapter three? I want you to flip over in your Bible to chapter three, and I want you to see verses 13 and through 17 what is wisdom if i need wisdom in order to endure trial and hardship what is it that i'm even asking for james 3:13 says this who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts do not boast and be false to the truth This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above. Where do you think the wisdom from above comes from? It comes from the God that's inviting us to ask for wisdom. The wisdom that is from above, James says, is first pure, then peaceable, Gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Now, here's, here's the, the amazing insight that James gives us. The world will never tell you. Friends, wisdom is not about what you do, wisdom is about who you are in Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, who Paul calls the embodiment of wisdom. To be wise is to be like Jesus. If you expect, as you ask the Lord for wisdom in the midst of your trial, for sort of this divine download of discernment, the sort of secret spiritual sense of what to do, you will be sorely disappointed. But if you ask for Christ-like character to walk through the trial, James says, you will be given. Now, it might sound like that's a raw deal. But remember, our approach to trials isn't to escape. Our approach to trials is to be formed into the image of Jesus. And when I understand that, this framing of wisdom is far greater than any gift that I could be given. I need purity in my trial so that I don't allow the hardship in my life to be an excuse for careening into a cataclysmic sin. I need to be peaceable in the midst of my trial so that I don't lash out at the people around me under the guise that hurting people hurt people. I need to be open to reason in the midst of my affliction in order to see the bigger picture of what God is doing in and through it. I need to be reasonable enough as a believer for a brother or sister in Christ to come up to me and put their arm around me and say, dear friend, I know you're struggling. I know you're suffering. I know this is hard, but take heart. God is at work in your life. And the only way that those things will happen is if God grants wisdom. So James says, chapter 1, if you lack wisdom, ask God, and he will give it to you generously. The idea there is of a singularity of purpose. God is fully committed to giving this kind of wisdom to his believing people. God is not like the man, Thomas Manton says, who gives with a hand half-closed. Dear brother or sister, if you are suffering and you desire this wisdom, make no mistake, the Lord will give it. But understand what it is that you're asking for. You're not asking for good advice. You're asking for Christ-like character. And understand that the only qualification that James gives on the giving of this gift lies entirely with us and not with God. Verse 6 Let him ask in faith with no doubting. No doubting? I once read that he who has a faith without doubting has no faith at all. How can James here encourage us to never doubt? Well, look at what uh, the picture that James paints for us. he, He paints this picture of the person who doubts. He says... The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. You think of a buoy out in the ocean as it's being tossed to and fro as the wind sweeps across the waves, thinking one thing at one time and another at the next. And even stronger than that is James' picture here of the one who is double-minded, verse eight, unstable in all of his ways. I love this phrase, double-minded. It means two-souled. Now, you've encountered someone in your life, as as I have, that was two-faced. And what that meant was that this individual said one thing in your presence, but then the moment that you weren't around, they started to sing an entirely different tune. At the one moment, your best friend. At the next, your greatest enemy. And the reason that we know that about the person who's two-faced is that their words betray them. Just listen to the fruit of their lips. They're two-faced. James here pictures a person who is two-souled because the Lord needs not to hear your voice, to know what's really in your heart. Two-souled. One moment praying to the Lord for wisdom. One minute rejecting the wisdom That the Lord gives. I love what Doug Moo says. He's one of my favorite New Testament commentators. He says, Pray to the shifting winds of motive and desire. This man wants wisdom from God one day and the wisdom of the world the next. Would you endure trials in a way that does not waste them? You need wisdom. And you need to understand that in the moment that the Lord grants wisdom, he may not grant you the way out. He might just grant you the character to go through. Because the Lord's end goal in all of the trials of the Christian life is this. To test and to strengthen your faith so that you persevere right through to the end. It's almost become a joke, I think, for many of us, I've been asked several times since I moved here, you know, how can you be, really, how can you be a Cleveland Browns fan? (laughs) And my response is the same every time. Some of you will be able to say it with me. I tell you it's easy. It builds character. (laughs) Now that's trite and meaningless, but it proves the point. That when faith is nothing but a cool breeze and a vacation at the sea, wow, is that easy to believe and to follow Jesus. But when the heat of the furnace gets turned up and faith is tested, well, that's, friends, where we come to realize that faith, the faith that justifies is not alone, but that it's bolstered and buoyed by hard-won endurance. It occurs to me that there would be many here, maybe not many, but definitely some, who've never trusted in Jesus, and you hear what we're saying, and you go, man, these people are crazy. And you're probably partially right. But what I would want to suggest to you is that perhaps this morning, as you, you you think about the hardship in your life, you're trying to frame it in the way that we're framing it here from the letter of James, and you just you can't even begin to sink your teeth into it. Let me, let me suggest this to you. Perhaps the suffering in your life isn't so much for, for the testing of your faith. As much as it is this morning to produce faith in you. Well, God has brought you here for a reason this morning. Not to hear the voice of a mere man. But to hear from him. And what a wonderful thing it would be if, in the stripping away and the melting away through trials and suffering and affliction of all the things that you think really matter in this world, what if, in the loss of all of that, you gained Jesus? Well, that's the greatest trade you'll ever make in your life. Why then these trials? To test and strengthen our faith so that we persevere straight through to the end. Part two next week. Let's bow and pray together. Father, we thank you for your divine wisdom that in your kindness and goodness in Christ, you have orchestrated trials in our lives to test our faith, to burn and melt away all that is impure so that we might come out on the other side as pure and as valuable as gold. Father, we thank you that you intend to bless even with the rod of affliction. And we pray for each and every one of us that as we endure suffering in this life, that we would look up beyond our suffering and that we would visualize that day when with Christ we stand in glory. When we are perfect and complete, lacking in nothing fully formed into the image and character of your very own son. Father, would you cause us to long for that day? Would you cause us to endure for that day? Would you make us like Jesus as we endure? Lord, we confess that your ways are not our ways. This is not how we would have written the text, but this is how you have. So help us to submit with humble and grateful hearts. We love you. We thank you. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.